Welcome to the Tuesday Night IBS Podcast, hosted by Jeffrey Roberts and Johanna Ruddy. The podcast connects patients and providers with information and education about the diagnosis and treatment of IBS and related diagnoses. Each month, we feature a new episode with guest experts in the field of fertility and neurogastroenterology who share the latest science and data for diagnosing and treating these conditions, as well as conversations about their impacts on the patient's quality of life. Just a reminder, the information provided in this podcast is for informational and educational use only and should never be substituted for medical advice. Always work with your doctor to diagnose and treat your IBS symptoms effectively. Thank you, everybody, for joining us tonight. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Roberts. I'm the co-founder of Tuesday Night IBS and founder of the IBS Patient Support Group and World IBS Day. I'm thrilled to welcome all of you tonight to our monthly webinar series. Tonight, we have a, a different kind of evening plan where we'll be presenting two clinical cases about patients with IBS-C. No two IBS-C patients are alike. So the treatment options for each patient may vary as well. Our expert panelists tonight feature two nurse practitioners, Kimberly Kearns and Christina Hansen, and Suzanne, a patient with constipation-predominant pre IBS. Tonight's medical educational webinar is supported by an educational grant from Ardalix, but we'd like to thank them for their support. Before we begin our program tonight, I want to share... Oh, I do want to share. Oh, there we go. I want to share with you our next month on October 10th at 7 p.m. will be hosting another free webinar for patients and providers about precision medicine, the future of IBS management, where we will be talking about the benefits of a new test for IBS patients. The webinar will feature a gastroenterologist, psychologist, and dietitian as our experts, and that is supported by an educational grant from BioAmerica. So please go to our website and register for that. You can register for any of our upcoming programs at TuesdayNightIBS.com. You'll be able to watch tonight's program at a later date, Everyone registered for this webinar will receive an email with a link to the recording. In addition, all of our previous webinar recordings are available via our TuesdayNightIBS.com website. So we encourage questions during this webinar. Please put those in the question and answer box, and we'll have time to address many of them in a panel discussion at the end of the program. So let's go ahead and introduce our experts for tonight. Kimberly Kearns is a nurse practitioner specializing in adult gastroenterology for Dooley Health and Care in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. For the past 15 years, she has provided inpatient and outpatient healthcare specializing in adult gastroenterology. She's a member of the American Academy of Nurse Practitioners, Illinois Society of Nurse Practitioners, Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, and a long-term member of the AGA. She is currently the co-chair of the Crohn's and Colitis Diversity and Inclusion Committee and is a member of the uh, Crohn's and Colitis Registered Nurse Advanced Practice Providers Committee. Kimberly is the co-founder of Midgut, a professional society dedicated to the education, mentorship, and collaboration of nurse practitioners and physician assistants specializing in gastroenterology and hepatology. She has been an invited speaker on several gastroenterology topics at regional and national meetings. Education for staff, students, peers, and most importantly, patients are truly her passion. Well, Christina Hansen is a nurse practitioner at South Denver Gastroenterology, specializing in adult care. She received her Bachelor of Science in Nursing from Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota, where she graduated cum laude and received her Master's in Nursing after completing the Family Nurse Practitioner Program at Regis University, graduating with honors. 
Currently, she's a course director and board of trustee for gastroenterology and hepatology advanced practice providers, and has had the opportunity to participate in educating other healthcare providers across the country as a national speaker on gastroenterology topics. Christina enjoys running, reading, and spending time with her husband and two beautiful daughters playing in the mountains of Colorado. And we often include a patient perspective in our webinars, and sometimes it's myself. And tonight, we're very fortunate to have Suzanne, who is a patient with IBSC. Suzanne is a retired registered nurse with 25 years of nursing experience, with 15 years of that time as a nursing director. In 2016, she was diagnosed with severe gastroparesis and then an IBSC diagnosis in 2017. She has navigated the challenges of finding the right provider and medical management that meets her needs and understands how difficult it can be to live with chronic health conditions. Suzanne is a well-versed patient advocate and has spoken about her illness journey on webinars and podcasts with various companies and patient-focused organizations. Suzanne found a new treatment in 2022 that made a huge difference for her and is now able to take extended camping trips with her husband and their trailer uh, travel trailer. We welcome our panelists and know that we are in for a really good discussion this evening, so let's get started. So here's our first case. A 48-year-old female high school principal visits a GI healthcare provider seeking advice regarding persistent problems with abdominal pain, bloating, and constipation. The symptoms have been going on for over 10 years, but have been more bothersome to her over the past two years. She reports feeling unwell most days, but experiences sharp, crampy pain two or three times per week. The pain can last for minutes up to an hour and often culminates in the feeling that she needs to move her bowels. The pain is not related to eating. When she does have a bowel movement, she experiences some relief from her abdominal pain. She reports one bowel movement every three, four, three to four days and feels quite bloated and full in the day preceding a bowel movement. More than half of her stools are hard and pellet-like. She was placed on fiber supplements, but that worsened her bloating. She is bothered by the unpredictability of her bowel pattern, compounded by an unwillingness to evacuate when she is at work. Because of her GI symptoms, she becomes anxious when in social situation and tends to avoid them. She sometimes has to stay home from work five or six times yearly when her symptoms are most active. She is frustrated that her previous visits with her primary care physician resulted in limited help with her symptoms. Physician examination reveals normal vital signs, a uh, body mass index of 30 and no evidence of dysenergia on digital rectal examination. Routine laboratory studies, complete blood count, serum chemistries, and TSH and colonoscopy are normal. She denies rectal bleeding, weight loss, or a family history of inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease, or colon cancer. So how do we approach this? I'll let one of you take that. Yeah. So one of the first things that I'd uh, be interested in knowing um, before kind of jumping in and, and dissecting the case a little bit is from Suzanne, actually, being a patient yourself, when you look at that patient scenario, what things jump out in your mind about what you would want us as the clinician to know? If we, Jeff, go back to that case and take a, a closer look at it, is there anything that jumps out at you that you would say, hey, I would really, if I were this patient, want to make sure I clarify or I bring to the forefront? Um, I think it's really important to look at this case and this person who's been suffering with this condition for 10 years with no help from her primary care physician. So when she's talking to her GI healthcare provider, it's really important that the provider understand this isn't new for her, that she's been suffering, but she's not getting the answers that she's been looking for. So 
the questions need to be asked of the patient from the provider about her experience for the last 10 years, just not the last few years that she was feeling her worst. I also think it's really important in any situation that the provider understand somebody with this condition may be embarrassed. Mm -hmm. It might not be easy for them to talk about. They may be self-conscious. They may be frightened to find out that it's something more than just the fact that they have IBSC with constipation. Mm -hmm. um, the worry that that causes and the, the problems that it causes can be paramount. I think the fact that she has this anxiety when she's in social situations and at work as well, that's something that the care provider needs to understand how that impacts her life. Mm -hmm. and question what her goals are. What is she looking for? How does she see her care going? Mm -hmm. How does she see her relationship with the care provider talking to her about the things that could be wrong and the things that need to be done to find out what her actual diagnosis is? Yeah. I think those are all amazing points, Suzanne, and we're, we're actually going to be spending some good time later in this in this talk talking about that patient provider relationship but to your point too this this has been long standing for this patient uh it doesn't necessarily say how frequently she's gone into her primary care provider uh she may take a few years in between just to your point because she's embarrassed she's frustrated it's difficult to talk about um she feels unfulfilled um um you probably know probably not heard right Christina? right not heard not validated not heard. right yeah and and we don't see a diagnosis here. We see these symptoms, symptoms, persistent symptoms. So at this point, it's probably taken a lot of guts for her, no pun intended, to come into the GI healthcare provider at this point. Um, and 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 you're right. It almost perhaps for her feels like she's on her last uh, leg with what's going on, just because she's been in multiple times. And that brings us to this idea when we look at this case. I think it's really important. We're talking about symptoms at this point. We don't have, uh, at least it doesn't look like she's coming in saying, I've been given this diagnosis of, of constipation predominant IBS. I think it's time to give that to her so she can be empowered and claim that. And that's really been a shift in thinking in recent years about this positive diagnostic strategy, right? It's not just a buzz phrase, it's legitimate. And the impetus for changing that is to get patients identified sooner and treated quicker and get them to a better quality of life. And that diagnostic, positive diagnostic strategy really is supported by our GI societies, the American uh, College of Gastroenterology and the American Gastroenterology Association. And so we as clinicians are really claiming that. And that's based on Rome 4 criteria, which is having abdominal pain at least one day out of the week for the past three months associated, pain associated with defecation, a change in frequency of stool and a change in form of stool. Okay. So Rome criteria, literally a group of experts came together in Rome in the nineties and came up with this criteria, diagnostic criteria for functional GI disorders, including IBS. And if we look at this case, she's reporting one bowel movement every three to four days, feeling quite bloated. And then she has this sharp cramping pain, abdominal pain, two or three times a week. So already right out the gate, she meets the criteria, right? And so she's having the cramping pain more than once a week. She has these harder stools, 
difficulty evacuating, and at this point certainly hasn't responded to over-the-counter fiber. So we know by Rome criteria, she meets the the, the diagnostic um, criteria for IBS with constipation, but on that algorithm, we want to make sure she's not having any alarm symptoms that warrant further investigation, right? So she has had a workup. We've done that rectal exam to make sure there's not pelvic floor dyssynergia, right? Um, and, and by that rectal exam, uh, this does not appear to be consistent with any kind of anal rectal dyssynergia or need for further testing. She's had a colonoscopy and had she not, certainly by guideline criteria, at 45 being the new 50 for our first screening colonoscopy, that should have been done. But we definitely see patients with IBS, constipation predominant or diarrhea predominant, tend to get more colonoscopies than they need, right? So she's had a routine colonoscopy. She doesn't have a family history, right? So we want to be asking about family history of IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease, certainly colon cancer. Those would be flags that we'd want to pay attention to as well. Her blood count looks good too. So she's had routine testing and that minimal amount of testing really is all we really should need to pursue. I would probably with her bloating, think also about maybe celiac testing as well. So Rome criteria, absence of alarm symptoms, long-standing, not sudden onset. So other alarm symptoms would be blood, um, uh, a sudden change, a sudden onset, unexplained weight loss, anemia, and again, that family history. So she doesn't meet that criteria. You can be confident as a primary diagnosis, not this diagnosis of exclusion, that this uh, lady has constipation predominant IBS, and she should be confidently given that diagnosis by the clinician so that she can claim that and be empowered. And that will help help her also self-manage as well as be confident. And, and to your point, Suzanne, this idea of continuing to feel like there must be something wrong, there must be something else, because I'm not being given any confidence by my clinicians for that. So as Kim and I like to say, name the baby. This is constipation, predominant IBS. I can be quite confident. Now we can start working on having this good uh, patient-provider relationship, and we'll talk about that um, as we go along. So that would be one of the first things. And Jeff, if Absolutely. we want to go to the next slide and kind of take a look at some of the other things that we want to be thinking about. And I think Christina too, I'm just going to jump in right quick because yeah. I know that clinicians are really focused on this positive diagnostic strategy, right? But I also have to say, because I know a lot of you in the audience are also patients. This is something that I think patients need to embrace as well, right? When you come in and see a provider like myself, Christina, and we've kind of run through everything. And, and sometimes patients, you know, because you're right, they've had symptoms for 10 years and we don't offer additional testing. I name the baby. I say, this is irritable bowel syndrome with constipation predominance. It is a subtype of IBS. It's over, you know, most 30% of patients actually suffer from this subtype specifically. But unfortunately, you know, we recognize over half of our population never gets this diagnosis. But using this strategy, I don't need to do any additional testing because we know, Christine, I think you know the statistic off the top of your tongue. Tell me the sensitivity and specificity of using a positive diagnostic strategy is what? 98% confidence in a primary diagnosis of IBS. Right. So with that, I think we all need to embrace this process, right? Not needing additional testing, not needing another colonoscopy, not needing more blood tests, but it comes from all of us collectively, our patients, right? And us as providers. So with that, I think we've named our patient, giving her some confidence, right? She knows now she's got IBS. We've given her two legs to stand on now. She can 
scream it from the Colorado mountaintops, right, Christina? Nope, that's right. Uh, <laughs> You're pretty high out here. Voice will carry a long way. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, so I think that, you know, starting off with that, you know, naming, you know, naming what we have, giving her confidence, just like Christina said, and what is this? And I think now we can dive in a bit further on like, how would we approach that? Christina, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, you and I could talk about this for hours, but um, I'll let you roll first. How about that? <laughs> yeah, so exactly. So now we, we've heard her, we've asked questions about this. Um, we're going to get a little bit deeper into, um, you know, other therapies that she's she's tried. Uh, it does name the fiber. But the first thing is just establishing that good patient provider relationship. I want my patient to feel confident in the diagnosis, but I also want them to feel validated in this condition. So I talked to my patient about this is complex. There are multiple pathways contributing uh, to the symptoms that we have with irritable bowel syndrome. So be validated. Abdominal pain. This is what leads my patients in and out of the ER. This is what patients are dealing with and rolling on the floor. This is this is legitimate abdominal pain, right? These symptoms of constipation, or in, in certain cases for, for the other subtypes, diarrhea or mixed, this is what affects your quality of life your work productivity, huge uh, percentages of absenteeism, right? Days out of work, like we saw for this patient. So be validated. What I'll say to my patient, hey, irritable bowel syndrome, complex of symptoms, while it's not going to affect your lifespan, it's certainly going to affect your quality of life. So again, letting them understand that I hear you, I see you, be validated. These symptoms are legitimate. A lot of patients will come in and say, I've always been made to feel like it's something in my head. I'm not coping well, or I'm just stressed. And yeah, stress stress can definitely exacerbate the symptoms. But like I'll tell a patient, life can be going along cool as a cucumber and you can have raging problems with your irritable bowel. So it's not always following that line. And it's certainly, while there is a disorder, and it's called a disorder of the brain gut access, that's a legitimate pathway. This isn't something you're making up. So be validated. And it's so important that they can feel confident in your confidence in them and, and being secure in talking to you. Because as Suzanne said, this is not easy to talk about. Sometimes I think that's what's helpful about whipping out the Bristol stool scale is at least they can do a little pointing if they can't describe it, but getting as much information as possible and inviting that, them into that. Hey, Details are important for me so that I can take care of you. This is what I do. Feel comfortable in talking about this. I want to know everything that's going on, not just the physical, but how it's affecting the quality of life. And we're going to get into a little bit later on how we can go about positive communication. What is What leaves our patients open and what maybe shuts down that process? So again, establishing that good patient-provider relationship. There's lots of good data about, around this in the literature that's going to make it more successful for our patients to can claim their diagnosis, to feel confident, to help self, self-manage themselves, um, and to be comfortable in talking about it. And that really moves on to how it impacts their quality of life and and emotional well-being. We know there's lots of different pathways contributing. And I think listing those and explaining and educating on those different pathways and helping a patient understand there's a lot of different things in the toolbox. Kim will talk about her tool. She's got a really hefty toolbox, by the way. She's got a real, she's she's like Popeye. She's got carrying her toolbox one on, on one arm. She's developed a Popeye arm. But there are a lot of different things out there, not just pharmacologic non-pharmacologic diet, um, brain gut behavioral therapy. We're going to go into all these in greater detail. Uh, But at that very initial visit, letting know there are a lot of options, but there are a lot of pathways. So it's not a a, um, one size fits all. We're going to try some stuff, but guess what? 
I don't want to lose you to the world out there. So I want to bring you back, see how things are doing, see what your expectations are at that very first visit, what my expectations are, and join together in line of, of approaching it. And then if if that quality of life is not where we want it to be at and where you want it to be at, there's other things that we can do. So uh, having that expectation discussion at that very first visit around educating what IBS is, I think is really important. Kim, I don't know, or Suzanne, if you have other things that you want to add around that. I just want to say, Christina, that when you talk about the validation, that is so important for the person that even though she's been, this lady's been suffering for 10 years, Mm -hmm. um, to hear somebody say to her, this is what you have. This is why I'm telling you, this is what you have is like having the world lifted off your shoulders. Yeah. You can actually take a breath and say, okay, Mm -hmm. nobody's told me this. And now I can put it in my hand and hold on to it and say, okay, now what do we do? Now that I know what I have, what do we do next? So I think that is invaluable, that validation. Yeah. Because how frightening to think think that you're always going along. What if I'm missing something? What if there is something more serious? I think I need another colonoscopy because nobody has given you that confidence and said, it's okay. Hey, this is not going away. You know, we can't, we can't necessarily cure it, but while it's not going to, uh, you know, affect your lifespan, quality of life, we're going to work on that. But absolutely giving that, that um, confidence, I think is so important because how scary to be bopping around out there for years. Right. And I think, Christina, you set this up so well, right? I think before you go in and, you know, we give you validation, we tell you about what we believe your diagnosis is, irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, we don't instantly start throwing out, okay, how are we going to treat you, right? I think it's so important how we set the stage. And I love how we build our foundation, right? So start with that relationship instantly, right? develop that rapport, make it strong and sturdy, right? Then of course, validate feelings, make sure you recognize that you, you know that how much this affects their quality of life. Mm -hmm. And then as we build next, right, then we start talking about, okay, how are we going to work on this journey with you together? How are we going to manage your irritable bowel syndrome with constipation predominance? And again, And it's not just about the constipation portion of it, right? It's now we recognize these global symptoms that we talk, we recognize with this patient, right? She's got constipation, she's got bloating and it's pain, but also, you know, we have to look at all of those things collectively, right? So when we start talking about treatment, this is interesting, right? Because we have some algorithms that we can use Mm -hmm. for treatment, but the good part about algorithms or guidelines is they're there, they're kind of borders, right? But we don't always have to use them and there's room in between and you can kind of move around. But the important thing I think we all need to know is guidelines are just that. They're guidelines and not everybody fits into guidelines. Yeah. And they're there to help us, right? But don't necessarily need to box us in. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and I think Christine and I can both attest to that. And it's very interesting too. We have multiple sets of guidelines. Sometimes they don't even agree. So, yeah. you know, how, how do you move on from there even, you know? So with this patient specifically, I think, you know, we look at our algorithm, one of the first things it says, by the way, the very first thing it says is establishing a great patient, you know, provider relationship. So thanks, Christina, for setting that up. The Mm -hmm. next part is education, which you've already nailed, right? Then the next step sometimes is we talk about like lifestyle and diet modification. So for this patient, I may ask a bit further. What have you tried from a lifestyle perspective? Um, have you do you um, you know participate in regular activity? Do you do yoga? Um, do you exercise? Have those things stopped or started? Or how has this affected the things that you love to yeah. do? Because mm-hmm. I think Suzanne, you pointed out, and I actually made notation. I was like almost like I was 
you know, being your clinician, writing things down. Um, you said something so important, goals, right? So when we're coming up with a treatment plan, the number one I think on my head is what is the patient's goal and how is my treatment plan going to get me to that patient's goal, right? That's so important. Um, <laughs> I did. I, I can show you the picture. I literally wrote it down when you were saying it, like thinking that's such an important, like, you know, topic to, 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 to bring oh, back if, up. If, if I can just add yeah. my comment, that is something that I try and counsel patients on, you know, what is the most important symptom that you want to manage? Mm-hmm. And that's their goal. Yeah. So thank you for, thank you for bringing that's that up. Debilitating. What can we focus? Yes, right. Yeah. So I think for this patient too, she says she's tried fiber, which, you know, that's right on our paradigm, right? We talk about, you know, trying to, to use fiber, but sometimes that in itself isn't really going to, I think, impact a patient such as, as this, considering she's had symptoms for 10 years. And I would agree, she probably has moderate, I would probably say moderate to even severe IBSD if we want to, you know, kind of regulate it a little bit, in my opinion. But again, we need to start with some therapeutics here. I think we need to you know, I like to say, get a little bit more motion in the ocean. We've mm-hmm. got to get something going here to hopefully help with managing not just the constipation portion, but mm-hmm. the global symptoms that this patient is presenting with, right? So we look at guidelines, and I know Christina and I both both recognize that some of the the original, you know, some of the guidelines we have for IBS, mm-hmm. B specifically is, you know, you start with some over-the-counter therapies that do include osmotic laxatives. Now, what I would like to point out, and I know Christine would love to jump in here too, is osmotic laxatives with break sometimes for increasing stool frequency, but not always helping with those other symptoms such as abdominal pain, right? So I guess I keep that in mind. I look at this patient, she's had symptoms for over 10 years. It seems like she's pretty severe. Um, You know, I know sometimes we have to try some over the counter because of the way that our pharmacy plans make us. But in this situation, I don't know about you, Christina, but would you just go right after a therapeutic at this point in time or or how would you take it? Because I, I, so. I know, I know ne- what I would do. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's been longstanding and, and that's why yeah. once, once they've bopped around to providers, I mean, then that's what we would drill down on a little bit with her too. As I mentioned earlier, we see that fiber, we see she's had multiple visits with her primary care. I would ask what else that they've tried her on, right? Because unfortunately, um, Suzanne can attest to this. Maybe they went in tried something, minimal benefit, went back in, followed, tried something else, minimal benefit. And then they just got frustrated. And then they went away for a couple of years and they came back to somebody new and they said, well, did you try it? Well, how long did you try? Well, let's try it again. You know, and well, back on fiber, they go and back on yes, osmotic enough. laxative, they go okay. again, just for that yeah. new provider to just basically see, okay, you didn't. So again, I'd whittle down on what she's tried and what her response was. Um, and I probably would say there's no reason to put this poor thing back on the same things. Part of the patient um, provider relationship is also that patient shared decision making. That's another positive buzzword that's legitimate. It's not just a, a fluff word. So offering and talking about that toolbox, what's in the toolbox? What do we have available? What has she already tried and failed? Our responsibility is to let patients know, well, here are the different things that are out there. Let's make a shared decision on where you want to go next. Here's what the medication is. Here's what we anticipated doing. Side effects, safety, for all that kind of discussion. And then let's share this in this decision and see where we go and see how you respond. So that's where I would bring her in as well. On Here are the options. Here's where we could go. Here's what you've done. All of the above are our options, our arms that we could go down. What should we do? What would you like to do? And keeping that goal in mind as well. What is that patient's ultimate goal? So yeah, I would probably at this point 
once understanding, and I'm going to assume those have all been tried, it's time to move on and, and give her those other options. And I think, okay. Suzanne, if you were this patient in this scenario, right, and if you came to write and then said, oh, let's try an over-the-counter medication. I don't think that would, I think that people get frustrated at the patient part. You know, you get frustrated because you've heard the same thing so many times and you've tried the same thing so many times and nobody's asked you, how is this working? What are we going to do? What else can we do? Mm -hmm. yeah. So I just, when you talk about the care provider, healthcare provider and patient interaction, I cannot stress enough how important it is for both sides to listen to the other side. Yeah. To be heard. Uh, yeah. 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 To be heard. And, you know, when you say involve the patient, absolutely. That's, that is paramount to the success of the treatment plan. Yeah. True. Right. And we could have a patient that we would like to start on prescription-based therapy, but I'll be honest with you, someone like this, I may, may begin or start to bridge that, but maybe their goal is not to start a prescription-based therapy. Right. Maybe they would like to try more diet and lifestyle modifications. Maybe, you know, and again, their goals, I need to understand those before, again, I work on that treatment plan. Yeah. So Christina, say this patient says, I am ready to start a prescription, you know, therapy, you know, let, and I know we need to like move on with some other, you know, situations here, but what would you do? And then how would you do the follow-up to the patient? What would you recommend? So I would offer the different agents that we have that are available for obviously constipation predominant IBS. And uh, there is a difference between some of these um, medications and the different doses that they have, which are indicated for chronic idiopathic constipation, which is different than IBS. Um, it's a, a kind of a different pathway profile and diagnostic um, you know, algorithm. Certainly the abdominal pain is the cardinal symptom that differentiates uh, for sure. So I would go into the different options and, and really over the last, you know, 20 years, if you will, we've had a lot of different agents that have been um, approved for constipation predominant IBS. So I would talk about the different options, talk about the dosing. Some medications are twice a day. Some, uh, the others are once a day. Um, and I think it's important to, for a patient to understand, you know, what they feel like they could be compliant with, go into the, the potential, potential side effects. I think anything we all have out there, uh, for constipation predominant IBS, the most common side effect is diarrhea, right? And treating constipation, most common side effect is diarrhea. Most often transient, most often resolves, um, after that, you know, first week, but I set that expectation up. So here are the different options once a day, twice a day, here are the ones indicated for your diagnosis, here are the potential side effects, see what they think. And part of it's what insurance is going to cover. And sometimes it's until I call it out to the void of the pharmacy, I might not know how your insurance, because cost is an issue too. So I think that's something that we have to say. There's a, a piece that we have to see what the cost is going to be, what that breakdown is. Starting a medication, I, I it doesn't matter what condition, I want to see the patient back within about a month but I want to hear from them sooner. So realistically, I'm booked out about a month for that first visit. That's not the next time I want to hear from you. I'll say that to that patient. I want to know what's happening within that first couple of weeks. So portal message me, here's my direct number. Give me a call, give me an update. Let me see how things are going. And by then, you know, maybe we even sample while we're waiting to see what prior authorization is going to come back with. I can get an update on how that patient's responding. And, and if, you know, they are having some significant side effects within those first few weeks that just aren't abating, we may be making changes before they even come back in for that first visit. Yeah, Christina, you said We've something. We've got just about one minute left okay. to, yeah. before we move on to the next case. 
Christina, you said something so important, which was expectations, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think we can even move on into the next case. But yeah. with this patient who really is having very, you know, limited bowel movements, I think when we, and I agree with you, I would start them on a prescription-based therapy. I see them back in four weeks time, but I also create expectation. What is the expectation with this medication? What do I expect is going to happen? Mm-hmm. I, I don't have the magic combination yet. But I think that this is where we develop that patient provider relationship. And again, this takes a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. I want to remind the patients they've had the condition for she specifically 10 years. It's going to take some time for us to move forward and getting her to feel better to meet yeah. her goals. But I think that's a really important thing when we're having the follow-up and even when we're making our treatment plan. Yep. Yep. And we can probably discuss that expectation and what subjectively is, is improvement for one might not be the same for another. So having, exactly. having percentages exactly. of goals, exactly. we can go in. We could do that. this. We could do this case all night. Sorry. Yes, we could. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're trying to make it as realistic as possible where unfortunately you only get 10 to 15 minutes with somebody. This is true. That's why you bring them back and you, you uh, have another conversation. Yeah. Okay. So day. let's, let's move on because I think we'll get more into maybe treatment options with the next case because it's slightly different. So uh, let's move on to the next case. Okay, so we have a 33-year-old woman with a history of fibromyalgia. She's referred to a GI clinic with chronic abdominal pain associated with constipation for many years. She has seen two primary care physicians and has been referred to GI due to the severity of her symptoms. She has tried all of the available over-the-counter treatments and currently uses milk of magnesia and Miralax combined to have a bowel movement. She describes a history of constipation, reporting no bowel movement for several days to a week at a time. Diagnostic labs, you know, complete blood count, CRP, CMP, TSH, and TTG, and a colonoscopy were normal. Her fibromyalgia symptoms started with a motor vehicle accident in her 20s. She takes a low-dose tricyclic antidepressant and undergoes physical therapy. She has improved her sleep somewhat. This has improved her sleep somewhat, which has been poor in the past, but pain and fatigue still impact her quality of life, and she is now unable to work and is on disability. She reports feeling frustrated that no one seems to understand how bad her health is, and previous healthcare providers have failed to help her. The patient also has anxiety and depression since her teens and is being treated with psychotherapy and an SSRI. So again, how do you approach this? One of the things I want to point out right out of the gate is, is just what we started out with the last one with Suzanne. This patient is frustrated that nobody seems to hear her. She's not feeling heard, right? Nobody seems to understand how bad her health uh, is. And, and prior healthcare providers have failed to help her. It doesn't say previous treatments per se. It's just, it's, there's, there's a focus here on provider. So this is one right again, right away that this patient certainly um, really needs to feel heard and seen and validated. And that alone, that feeling heard by a provider, feeling understood, feeling validated, that alone might go, you know, miles in, in this patient's eyes in just, you know, being able to feel confident that and trust, trust that, that you as this clinician, if you can just make eye contact empathize, validate, be open, make the patient feel comfortable. That alone might just do, you know, buckets for her, um, you know, in benefit uh, of just validating that. And I think when we look at this again, very, very severe symptoms, but a lot of comorbidities, a lot of other things going on. 
We see this idea. We know this is longstanding. She's been to multiple providers. She she describes it as severe. She's tried all of the available. This one lists it. She's tried all the available. And right now she's limping along in Milk of Mag and Miralax, right? But she still, it looks like, goes several days in between. Diagnostically, not finding anything. So very, very consistent again with um, IBS. So again, validating that, claiming that, giving her that. But then we've got this fibromyalgia too. Um, so she has a couple things going on. It talks about along with a depression and anxiety. Along with the depression and anxiety. So she's got right. she's got multiple. This is this is a much more complex patient, but not necessarily one that we wouldn't see in our clinic. So we talk about pain and fatigue is still impacting her quality of life, you know, assuming that's from her fibromyalgia. She's on a tricyclic antidepressant and she's on an SSRI for anxiety and depression. Those don't necessarily mix, if you will, but there might be somebody, uh, you know, prescribing the tricyclic for her fibro over here. We don't know if that's a uh, rheumatologist. We don't know if that's primary care. Her psychiatrist is managing her anxiety and depression with an SSRI. We know that tricyclic antidepressants, the side effect, a common side effect is constipation. This may be worsening her constipation. So there's a lot of things we need to sort of tease out in this and, and better understand. And if she's only having somewhat of an improvement in her sleep, really, it's not helping her fibromyalgia at all. This is something we might need to bring in a multidisciplinary team, right? We might yeah. need to talk to her prescribing provider for fibro. We might need to talk to her psychiatrist. How can we uh, maximize on these other kind of therapies or maybe make some changes if it's really not helping her, uh, notably that tricyclic, knowing that there could be an exacerbation of her constipation. So much more, much more holistic and multidisciplinary approach, I think is needed in this case with involving other healthcare providers. Kim, what other things jump out at you or Suzanne? Well, I was going to say, I recognize the siloing here, right? We've got one provider taking care of this, one provider taking care of this, and now we're going to move into the GI space, right? And I think this is where we also need to take a grander approach to, to looking at IBS, right? We have to recognize that the underlying pathophysiology is so diverse that we do need a multidisciplinary approach. So mm-hmm. someone like this who has underlying fibromyalgia has also anxiety and depression. This is a key patient to really think about a using a multidisciplinary or you know um, the team actually mm-hmm. in order to help manage her health. I mean, and I agree with you, Christina. It seems like she comes in and, and she's like she's feeling frustrated that the provider aren't recognizing how poor her health is. So I think this is where we step up, right? That we really, and I think as advanced practice providers, this is where we, I mean, instantly when, when we looked at this case together, I'm like, she's on PCA and an SSRI. Hold on a second. <laughs> so um, this might not be the right combination for her, right? But those of you that are patients in the audience, this is where you need to be advocates as well. Sometimes, you know, you might have one person managing a little bit of this and another provider managing a little bit of this. And collectively, you know, we have too many um, cooks in the kitchen and they're spoiling the soup, right? Or they're just not making the best recipe for our patient. Um, So, I mean, that was the first thing that jumped out at me. The other thing too, is that for this patient specifically, right? I would, you know, she's already utilized over-the-counter therapies and my treatment option, I would ask her what her goals are, 
what is her most troublesome symptom, and then work on a pharmacological treatment option that would work best for her. Speaking with her about side effect profile, does she need a, a medicine once a day, twice a day, taking it with food, without food? How would that work for her? Because I think the most important medicine is the one they're going to take, right? So with that being said, (laughs) trying to find a therapeutic process to get her to her goals. But the other component of this too, which I can clearly see here thinking about this, you know, gut brain interaction that we have is also really recognizing the anxiety and depression and how this is probably also weighing into her IBS symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. So for her, um, in in my clinical uh, opinion, I would start her on a therapy to right away help with, um, you know, managing her constipation symptoms, reevaluate her to see how we're moving from a constipation perspective. And again, I agree with you, Christina, I have patients come back in four weeks, um, either they might chart message me ahead of time or send something, but I also ask them to rate, you know, how are we doing on a scale of either one to 10, or I give percentages, right? Which, um, I say, are you better by 10%, 40% or I'm like, or, you know, zero Kim Kearns, you're crazy. We need to start over again. Right. Which is okay. Um, because this is our journey with the patients that we're having. So we really need to ensure that we're, we're following the goal that they need. Right. Yeah. And I, I think if we worked on the constipation perspective, but we still were hearing a lot of the anxiety, depression, and if we were able to collaborate, of course, with, you know, psychiatry specifically is who I would collaborate with. Yeah. Um, and then see with this patient, possibly be a great candidate for possible cognitive behavioral therapy, which for me, this is exactly like the pathway that I would set this patient up for like day number one, explaining the underlying pathophysiology of IBS, giving her therapeutic, but also talking about this multidisciplinary kind of approach um, as we move forward. Suzanne, I want to hear what you think about this. That's what I was going to just say. I'm, (laughs) I'm very curious to know how you feel about, you know, managing this and being heard. Mm-hmm. I, just reading about this makes me sad to think that this person has so many medical issues and she's not being heard. And I think, Kimberly, when you said it's our journey, that speaks volumes mm-hmm. to be the patient and, you know, being face facing these things and nobody's listening to me. And now I'm just going to take this milk of magnesia and Miralax, which I can't even imagine. but. To have somebody say, this is our journey. I'm going to walk side by side with you. And if I have to hold your hand, I will. That has got, things like that have the biggest impact on somebody that's frightened and frustrated and angry and has anxiety and has depression. I just think your focus when you talk about the patients that you care for it's amazing. People who have you are so lucky because hopefully less people are like this case and more people are like me and, and have found a care provider that walks with me. Mm-hmm. And I think the, yeah. I think the important thing here, and you just mentioned Suzanne was the anxiety and depression. Nobody here is saying those are the cause of your IBSC. They're saying, let's, we need to look at it all. We need to treat right. everything. Right. Because this is unfortunately what you have and let's work with it, not blame the patient. Right. And you're a whole person Mm -hmm. and this whole person has fibromyalgia and anxiety and depression Mm -hmm. and IBSC. Mm -hmm. So they're not 
individual on their own. They're all part of who I am as a person and I need help. So to have somebody that's going to walk with you and take the journey with you, that's invaluable. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I'm just wondering, have we, have we exhausted this? We understand that she has fibromyalgia and fatigue. Uh, you both said it, that it's, she has severe IBSC. Um, and you suggested using, you know, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, perhaps might be beneficial here, certainly to maybe help with some of the thought patterns around the anxiety and depression. Yeah. Is there anything, you know, like a layered approach? Because I think it's so important to like, especially with our patients with severe IBS, right? And and you're right. It's not just about managing one thing. It's about managing everything and how all of those things really interrelate. They really do. Everything makes up uh, the component of our patient, but also even the components that really lend into our IBS patients as well. Okay. Let's kind of change pages here and talk because we've been talking a lot about uh, how do you? How does the patient speak to the provider, and how does the provider speak to the patient? So let's spend a few minutes talking about you know taking some home points on what you've already spoken about about effective uh, communication and shared decision making. So I'm going to move on to these slides, and I'll let uh, Kimberly and Christina work through these. Yeah, and I think yeah, I mean again, giving giving that empowering, confident diagnosis. Um, is also being clear in how we're naming the baby, as we say, you know, and how we're talking. Um, be clear and don't let there kind of be room for uh, you as a clinician or or especially as how you're talking to the patient, there to be some question about this, because again, it, 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 it won't um, end up being a supportive environment for your patient um, or confidence uh, for them to, to continue, you know, um, being, you know, on this journey with you. So this language matters, looks at being clear with our, our conversations, um, rather than just qualifying. And you can kind of see, we rename the baby, right? He has irritable bowel syndrome with constipation. Instead of saying, well, you may be having this, you're suffering from, it's possible that that's not, this doesn't, you know, garner any confidence. He has been diagnosed with, this fits the picture of his diagnosis is that of this. Well, it's reasonable to maybe label. Nobody wants to hear label, by the way. That just, that just, that shuts all sorts of doors. You just, you're labeling me with this. That's just terrible. Definitely, confidently has. Well, my working impressions, that's, that still doesn't instill confidence. And then I have been diagnosed with, let your patient claim it. It's a condition. It is a diagnosis. It affects my quality of life. It's not going to, you know, as, as we've heard, it's not going to kill me. It's going to affect my quality of life though. I have this diagnosis and I'm claiming that instead of managing as a case of. So again, be clear, be concise, uh, and be confident in, in how we're talking to our patients and allowing them to have that confidence as well. And I think on the next si- slide, Jeff, we have some ways of, of how we go about, um, aiding our patients and talking about things that just aren't easy to talk about, right? Suzanne, you said it right out of the gate. And I try to talk to my patients, hey, this is what I do. The details are important to me. I want to know your whole story. Yes, start from the beginning. You know, they'll come in and say, well, I've had this since, you know, I've had stomach issues all my life, you know, that type of thing. But, you know, I, 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 I it's a long story. Do you want, no, yes, I do. I do want to hear that story. I want to hear everything. So patients with IBS, 
Certainly, they might not be competent and willing to share the severity of their symptoms or the extent at which they use different aids, right? Laxatives, splinting, um, talking about bowel movements is embarrassing. So how can we initially approach our patients to give them a safe space to talk about this? Providers should really take the time to assess this during the history taking using verbal and nonverbal communication methods. That's critical for getting all that information that we need. As Kim said, we need to get all the information so that we can be able to best navigate this journey. And Jeff, on the next page, it's giving us different ideas of of nonverbal communication that can be ineffective or effective. I mean, right out of the gate, the cartoon alone, right? It almost looks like this practitioner is saying, you know, no, I don't want to hear it. I just want to look at what's written down in front of me. I mean, that just shuts somebody down right out of the gate, avoiding eye contact, staring at that medical record. Unfortunately, we all have these electronic medical record systems, you know, when there's a computer in every room and, and it's, it's, you know, it's fast turnover. I, I personally don't like the computer on when I go in. I pers- personally, I like to look at that patient's chart if I can and have time the day before my next day. I actually go through the, the list of patients that are coming in because they might be new to me or they might have been one of my physician colleagues' patients for years and it might be the first time I'm seeing that patient or they're a brand new patient to the clinic or I've spent somebody I've followed and they've had a few things go on. So I actually like to go into that chart. I, I'm a paper waster. I scribble everything down that I can so that I am prepared to go in there and not have to pull up and look up records. But it's not it's not necessarily easy. But if you have to look at a, a computer or you have to look... Let's 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 be looking at the patient, right? Don't turn away from that patient. This man is waving his hand in a dismissive manner. So, you know, the the patients that get interrupted, you know, or they're in the middle of saying something and the and the clinician asks something totally off subject to try to redirect down the way they want to go. The patient, we can see they're not, you know, receiving this well. They're looking down, their shoulders are slumped, her arms are crossed, legs are crossed. She clearly does not feel comfortable. She clearly does not feel like she can give details around her symptoms that are hard and embarrassing to talk about in the first place. Then we look at on the right, a more effective approach, obviously face-to-face, providing good eye contact, nodding, non-verbally showing showing that patient that you're hearing them, that you're listening. The patient obviously perceives this, this welcoming, interested, and acceptance from this physician, from this doctor, provider, clinician, APP. She's encouraged by this, you know, this, this body language, this eye contact, uh, this empathy, um, and now is displaying this open posture and active gesturing. So this simple, simple things like looking at your patient, nodding at them, these are all nonverbal. This isn't even, uh, you know, summarizing what your patient said. It's not um, rephrasing the sentence that can also draw in. This is simple nonverbal communication that can go a long way in making our patients feel comfortable. Kim or Suzanne, do you have anything that, Suzanne, do you have any experiences uh, of being in with a clinician that, that put you off or that was successful? I've actually had both experiences mm-hmm. in the slide. Um, and I think it's unfortunate. I had a very effective care provider and some changes in insurance. I had to find somebody new. And when I found that new person, I had the ineffective care mm-hmm. provider. The opposite, yeah. Exactly what the picture shows, waving yeah. the hand, not looking in my eye and telling me after five years, just take Miralax, you'll be okay. Mm-hmm. It'll work. So after, without even knowing my history, yeah. 
of five previous years. So um, it does make a difference. Yeah. Knowing somebody's listening to you and people have a lot to say in general. If you've had an illness for a long time, you have a lot to say about it and you want somebody to listen. So the this effectiveness um, in the slide is absolutely correct. The nonverbal cues that you give are vital to the success of the person being able to talk to you and tell you what's going on because we have a lot to say. Mm-hmm. You do and you should. <laughs> Yep. Kim, do you have any other input on at least the nonverbal portion? You know, um, I, I think we've talked about this before. I always sit down on a visit. I always make sure that I'm at the exact same level of my patient. When I set up my rooms, my patient's always either sit in front of me or, you know, directly next to me. Um, mm-hmm. I'm never standing. And I, I think that that just helps, you know, instantly create, you know, uh, kind of a, just a better way to communicate with each other. Yeah. Also, too, I know you and I joke all the time. It's very uncomfortable to talk about poop, but you right. and I are the self-proclaimed princess of poop and queen of Poland. Poland. So, you know, sometimes breaking the ice a little bit and, and a little brevity of, to the moment. Exactly, yeah, exactly. No mm-hmm. one likes to talk about poop, but we do it all day. Yeah, you know, yeah. we so happen to. Yeah. We, yes. So, but we do like to talk about poop. So when Christina yeah. says, we want to know about everything we do, yeah. we do. Yep. Yeah. Give me the <laughs> so. details. I want the whole story. Yeah. To your point too, you'll come in sometimes a patient's on the, they self-select to sit on the, um, the examining table. And, uh, unless they really want to be up there, I, I always say, Hey, why don't, do you want to put it back to your, you know, chair? Let's let's have you sit here because it does it. Just looking up or certainly standing and looking down. I like yeah. to be right across from low. Let's sit. Let's get cozy for a while. I'll say let's chat for a while. Bring out the tea and and then we can, we'll get it get you up there later if we need to. But let's have a chat first. So yeah, definitely, Jeffy. If you want to move on to the next slide, I think um, I think Kim's gonna speak a little bit sure. to the next couple slides. Sure. Um, so finding the right medical management for your IBSC patient, right? So patients with chronic symptoms may assume that even a small improvement in symptoms is as good as it can get, right? We kind of talked about this earlier, like kind of setting goals, but also knowing, right, that we need to continue, I think, as a provider and even as a patient, that there are other options for IBSC management that can provide even better management. So are you as good as you can be? would be my question. And and sometimes I ask my patients too, when I ask them to rate their, you know, their improvement or lack thereof on a scale of either, it says I'm here one to 10, I do percentages as well. So very close, right? But then I ask, what do you think is going to get us to this higher number? What are we missing? Or what part of the treatment plan that we have now do you think would get us to a higher level? Mm-hmm. But I think for both patients and providers, we have to know right? Two things. One, we've got new, new therapies that are available, right? So thinking about, do I need to switch a therapy is not such a terrible thing, especially if we're not where patients need to be and being the best that they can with managing their IBS symptoms. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think we also need to consider is Christina and I, I know we've talked about this. IBS is so, the pathophysiology of it is so interesting and it's multifaceted, but it also changes and it changes over time. So we also have to know that the therapies that we use may need to change as well because Mm -hmm. this underlying pathophysiology of the IBS also changes. So we have to keep that in mind and patients keep that in mind as well as you continue your journey with your IBSC. Jeff, Mm -hmm. let's move to the next slide. 
So I think we've, we've definitely talked about how it's so important to have a great patient-provider relationship, right? Patients need to know that we as their providers are their partner in care. And as I think it was so nice, Suzanne, how you just said that we talked about that journey. I, I actually say that a lot to my patients. I talk about our journey. But I always say, like, there is someone here, right, that I will be here to help on this journey, right? And they have to, patients especially, have to feel comfortable voicing their opinions about their management options. And as Christina pointed out, shared decision-making, which is so important to make sure that we have the patient's perspective as we're making, you know, and I call it the grand recipe for our patient, right? This helps build trust between us and the providers and, of course, our patients. And, of course, we want to make sure that this improves satisfaction of our patients, but also improves outcomes, right? And I just want to point out, I have an article that I had pulled up. It's by... um, Amy Kassenbaum Leduski, who she actually has a wonderful article. She's a PA, by the way, everyone. So I don't know if there's any Chicagoans listening, but she's a PA from Northwestern who actually wrote an article all about the positive patient relationship in patients with IBSC, right? And of course, the main component of this, and I had written this down, so forgive me, I am going to take a second to read it because I believe Amy is brilliant and I think she deserves this. So the, the patient relationship empowers patients to self-manage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, enhances treatment compliance, increases patient satisfaction, improves health outcomes, and of course, decreases overall healthcare visits. So guess what, patients? You can go on living your life, right? That's, of course, what we would want. Suzanne, do you have anything to lend to this kind of, this slide right here? Um, yeah, I think, oh yeah, go ahead, Suzanne. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was just going to say when we were talking about um, the treatment plan, I'm sorry, the treatment plan. One thing that I found happened to me is I was given a treatment and it didn't work and I felt like a failure. And I think that's super important with that as good as it can get theory. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty common that people might feel that way. And I did, I felt like I had failed because my first treatment didn't work. Mm -hmm. So that can be very discouraging. Um, I think I would like more information about Amy. Is that is that what you said? Her name was Amy. Uh, Amy I would like yeah. to know about her. I don't know anything about her, but I would like to know about her because what you read was amazing. Right. She is pretty amazing. Yeah. And I think that what you just said, Suzanne, too, is is in the beginning, and, and Kim said this as well, it's not a one size fits all. We tailor it. There are different pathways contributing. But guess what? We have a lot of different options having that discussion in the, in the beginning, letting and educating your patients that there are different things, but there are different pathways. So we're going to start here, but if this doesn't work, if if this is not helpful, guess what? We're moving on. There's other things that we can do. So it's not your fault. It's not, if you fail, if this isn't working right. for you, if this isn't improving you, is this, if this isn't meeting our goals and expectations on this journey, guess what? There's other things we'll move on. There's other things that we can try and, and, and we're going to go down this road together. You know, I always say it when I'm, I'm saying about, you know, we'll get, we'll get you fixed up. We're going to figure this out. We'll figure this out. And yeah, there's periods where it's, it's a little bit better and periods where it's, it's worse. And, and then all of a sudden you were constipation put on for years and all of a sudden you're having the, so there, there can be things to change, but guess what? I'm here, you know, then we're, we're going to tweak it. There's times we're, we're going to need to tweak it and that's okay. So don't, don't hesitate to follow up, do follow up because then there, there may be, we need to pivot or we need to shift. And there's things that we can do um, to pivot and shift too. And I love this last sentence, a strong and positive patient provider relationship is just as therapeutic as medical management. When I came out in the very beginning saying that alone, just being heard for that, especially that second patient case, 
could be therapeutic, just as therapeutic, if, if you know, not more to a, to a degree. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's eight o'clock now. So um, I'm assuming everyone is good for another few minutes. We finish off our slides and get to the question and answer. So I, is it okay if I move on? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this is actually our last slide. So then we can yeah. move right into, um, you know, of course, questions. So I think this is a great summary slide, right? Talking about the guidelines for effective provider-patient communication. So one, for those of us that are providers, and I think that this also just lends to, you know, patients as well, right? Um, I, I think that these guidelines also help with patient communication, right? So state very clearly, like for us as providers, what is your diagnosis, right? What is the diagnosis? And use clear language. Don't use, and you know, language that, you know, Christina used, may have. Be concise, be empowering with the language, right? So the next thing is, of course, assessment. So assess the patient's understanding and respond with clear information. And this is where I think we, we talked about in the beginning. I love education, but I think this is also about not only assessment, but this is also about education, right? You have to understand the patient's under, you have to, as a provider, I need to understand the level of patient's education that they have about their condition. How much information do they need? How much more will they need? But the other po important part here is understanding learning style. Not mm -hmm. everyone learns the same. I can't just hand every single patient a piece of paper that talks about IBSC. That's not everyone's learning style. So myself as a provider, this assessment part is pretty grand. And I think this is where we, especially as advanced practice providers, are stellar in regards to that education component of it all. Um, part of that, which I'll get to in just a second, is, is one of my favorite new tools. So the next part is encouraging collaboration and promoting the patient's active role in decision making. I, I think Christina and I have both um, definitely extrapolated on how important it is for shared decision making and how important it is for that the patients are a partner and recognizing it's our journey, right? your journey. And we're here with you so that we make that a partnership. I always tell patients, we're partners in this. You have to let me know where, where we're at together here. The next, the second to last thing, of course, is setting up a mutually agreed upon goal, right? And expectations, which we brought up before. I think that that actually lends to an even better patient provider relationship, right? But also tells you as a patient, Am I, am I reaching my target? Am I getting where I need to go? So this way, you know, do I need to call Kim or Christina sooner? You know, am I, am I getting there? But also when you know you meet those goals, these are moments to celebrate, right? Mm -hmm. To say, I, I am, I am on my way. I am on my journey. And last of, and, but not least, of course, providing positive um, regard and empathy and engaging with the patient and achieving satisfaction. Um, so, and I think that that lends to everything that we've talked about. And one last part here is I know we talked about education and I know uh, I brought this up earlier, but I think for patients too, using technology, right? For a team-based care and using that approach. And now I think over the last few years, things have changed slightly, but now we have technology that's available to help us in a team-based approach for our IBS patients. Specifically, now we have, um, you know, apps. We've got Mahana, which is a cognitive behavior, behavioral therapy or CBT. It's a prescription-based app for patients with irritable bowel syndrome. So again, we can look at this whole process. We also have Zemedy. We have Nerva. These both work on CBT. And then also Nerva is gut-directed hypnotherapy. So again, these are apps. So before when we would really have the inability to provide, I guess, the access. Now we have access, right, to these things as well. And also, um, Health 
also has opened up a whole nother section for our IBS population as well. So with that, um, Christina, Suzanne, anything you want to lend into this last slide before we jump into questions? Yeah, I think that that's a good a good summary that beyond, you know, pharmacotherapy, diet, um, you know, cognitive behavioral feedback, in the absence of being able to come in every day and see the provider or the dietitian, those kind of technology apps are available for patients to be um, have much more frequent touches and accountability um, and self-management. So that's that's something that I think is really important to also incorporate in our treatment algorithm with our patients as options. Okay. Well, thank you for that. That was very helpful. Uh, honestly, the, the guidelines that you've kind of put together in terms of how both the clinician should speak to their patient, how the patient might want to speak to their doctor not, or, not, or the provider and not feel ashamed or afraid to talk about something, that's what they're there for. Mm -hmm. And they, they've heard, you know, all about poo. Uh, so, yeah. Okay, let's get, let's get on the questions here. Um, let's see. I'm bothered with diarrhea. I have tried cutting out various food, but still continue to have diarrhea. And not making it to the toilet in time is so debilitating. It's not necessarily constipation, but actually it could be related to constipation. So maybe one of you would like to take that. You got this one, Kim, or you, she's got something. She's her fingers going up there. I know there's lots of questions in the queue. So first of all, if you're having, in my clinical expertise, if there is urgency with incontinence that requires for the workup. Mm -hmm. Um, so please make sure you see a provider and let them know, because for me, this is something that those, one of those features that needs some workup, but going back to another thing is that just because it's diarrhea doesn't always necessarily mean it's diarrhea. It could be actually be overflow constipation, right? Um, so a lot of my patients come in and see me and, and they explain symptoms very similar almost to what you're describing. Mm -hmm. I do an x-ray and they're actually full of stool and what they're describing to me is actually overflow diarrhea. So this is a completely different pivot as to how we would yeah. do things. So yeah. to answer your question, I think you need to see a provider here in yeah. Colorado. I can give you Christina's number after we're done. <laughs> yep. Come see me. You got to do some. Yeah, I agree. I mean, again, we're, we don't know if it's necessarily a, a, a diarrhea predominant IBS diagnosis already, but well, I, I do think it's a self-selecting cutting out foods is not uncommon. And, you know, especially dairy and, and gluten um, yeah. being a little bit more triggering foods, but the assumption, it must be something I'm eating. Um, but it's not always, it's uh, sometimes you, you, there is a food trigger, but it's more of what's happening at the level of the gut microbiome, right. And the reaction to that food and the fermentation rather than the actual food being an allergy per se. So, um, and, and to Kim's point, nocturnal diarrhea and, uh, and fecal incontinence, um, definitely would want to have a further workup for that. And, and, um, uh, overflow is a possibility, especially if you're going days in between and then just blow out these blowouts are our possibility too. So yeah, this would be something without more detail, knowing more detail, I would want to make sure. Okay. You, it was a nice segue actually, because you mentioned yeah. gluten-free. There's a question here. Can you give some ideas for gluten-free soluble fiber foods to help with IBSC? Gluten-free. Might so be a question for our dietitian in the next yeah. session. In yeah, October. you're going to see Kate Scarlata, the I'm, next one. I'm shuffling through some papers. Hold on one second. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, you know, if specifically, um, if uh, gluten-free soluble fiber foods might be a part of um, the, the Monash app. And Kim, if you have something. Yeah, yeah. that was actually what I, I was just looking here. Low gluten yeah. strict. Um, yeah, that I was just looking at the same thing myself, just thinking, I think it would have to be Monash would be where mm -hmm. I would probably um, refer Preference back to for something. Because or a question. This is tricky. Yeah. That's tricky. Yeah. 
I have a question. I think Suzanne actually could provide some insight on this. So what do you do if your goal is different than the provider's goal and they don't want to listen to you and your goals? You might need to find a new provider. Okay, I, feel like that. I feel like the patient's goals usually trump, but. <laughs> I think, you know, sometimes the patient's not as open to what the provider's saying. And sometimes the provider's not open to the patient's goal. So if, if you're not on the same page, then you're not in the right place. No. It happens. Um, you mentioned SSRI. It was, it was listed in that case. Uh, there's a question here. Do SSRIs help with constipation? That's a tough one. Yeah, because of side effects. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't use it. Would use it. It's certainly off-label, but um, uh, it's it, it, sometimes uh, one type of antidepressant can have a side effect benefit. Uh, SSRI um, would typically be if 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 you read some of the literature um, for abdominal pain, global symptoms of IBS. Uh, depending on the the predominance, usually if there's more of an anxiety um, or depression, uh, component and it's not constipation, uh, or, or, uh, it's, it's, uh, TCA, you wouldn't necessarily use in a constipation predominant patient. Um, but if there's more of an anxiety TCA, we typically would, would look at for more of that abdominal pain component, um, that severity there, but the constipation gets a little trickier with that. SSRI, uh, has been looked at, um, in treating IBS, uh, this, the side effect yeah. profile might be okay in a patient, um, that has constipation predominance, but you kind of have to take all the whole kind of picture into play, um, with that, uh, as far as if they have a, a counselor or a psychiatrist, um, there are society guidelines that, um, have them listed as, as something that could be an option or a recommendation, um, and some that don't. So again, we talk about the guidelines aren't, aren't, you know, the Bible per se, and we, we go around guidelines and tailor, but um, specifically looking at it for constipation, no, we tend to do it for more the anxiety gut brain dis disorder or dysfunction um, and the abdominal pain piece of it, unless there's a side effect profile. Go ahead, Kim, you have something more you want to- No, this would just be a layer drug for me. Like yeah, I would definitely exactly. use something for like constipation, but then also to like throw an SSRI on there if they were constipation predominant, right? Yes. Um. So, and again, as Christina mentioned, you know, there's conflicting data in regards to what we would utilize from our society guidelines. But again, um, we'd definitely not use a TCA probably if I didn't need to on someone with constipation predominance. Patient predominant, yep. Yeah. Okay, last question. Mm -hmm. Is there a way to get off of laxatives like Miralax, which my GI doctor said I could take forever, causes bloating and some other issues, which I'd like to eliminate? This is a very common question that I hear. So I, I find this, this is an interesting question, and it's also a hard question sometimes to like give the answer to, because sometimes what I have to remind patients of is when you get diagnosed with something like irritable bowel syndrome, remember, especially constipation predominance, right? It's a chronic illness, and chronic, unfortunately, means something that you're probably going to have lifelong, right? Mm -hmm. So some of the elements when I have a patient come in and they say, you know, Kim, I'd really like to get off this medication. One, I just kind of find out, you know, it sounds like from this question, it's due to side effects, right? Yeah. So then I would say, how can we do better, right? That lends back to that other that other question that we have. Doesn't sound like we're doing good enough here. So let's figure out if we can do better in regards to managing your symptoms. And then I go back and have a little bit of education discussion on, again, the you know diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome with 
constipation and the chronicity of it. Right. Um, and then I think that that lends to then how we collectively as a team, right. Work on their goals of managing their symptoms. Yeah. I mean, safety profile wise, that's one thing, but if, if side effects are popping up with Miralax or sometimes if a patient is sort of limping along, we talked about you know, what, what's the patient's goal? If they're going once every three weeks and they're now going once a week, that might be an achievement. I mean, I'd like them to go a little more, but that's my expectation. So having that goal, but if I have a patient who's limping along, uh, they're having a response. I, there's a difference between response and adequate response, right? And that's subjective right. when it comes to irritable bowel, but that's what I say a lot in a lot of things. There's a difference between the response and adequate. So what does that look like for you? Uh, what do you want to achieve? That's that expectation. And if I have a patient that has to take three doses of Miralax all day, plus fiber, and they're just plugging and chugging just to get to that goal. I mean, that's not much of a quality life if, if, if we, ha- if, if they're okay with it, but that's where I say, okay, you're, you're getting by, but guess what? There's some other things out there that might actually give you better quality of life, um, or a little bit easier day-to-day living. Um, and so I think that's where you have that discussion, but certainly if there's, if there's some side effect symptoms, certainly I think it's, it's reasonable to try, you know, a different course of action. Okay. Let's, let's end it there. Um, I think we had a really good discussion. Something you said very early on was in the last 20 years, there are a lot of more treatment options for IBSC and clearly not one answer doesn't, uh, sorry, one treatment doesn't answer everybody's particular symptoms. Mm-hmm. It's a very individualized care situation. And so I thank you, um, Kimberly and Christina, and especially Suzanne, for your insight tonight, talking about IBSC and talking about, you know, how do you both approach it from the patient perspective as well as from the pr- provider um, perspective? Been very, very helpful. Um, a reminder to everybody that uh, if you signed up for tonight, you will receive a link to tonight's uh, recording. And again, um, hopefully we'll see some of you on October the 10th for our next webinar. And I want to thank um, you again for both attending and for our panelists for being here tonight. Thank you very much for your time. And everybody have a wonderful evening. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Stay subscribed for more bonus content and an all new episode of the Tuesday Night IBS podcast each month. Be sure to follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag Tuesday Night IBS. We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at 7 p.m. Eastern Time with our monthly guests and encourage you to join in on the conversation. Find our latest webinars on our website at TuesdayNightIBS.com. In addition, check out both of our pages on Facebook and YouTube at Tuesday Night IBS and find video presentations provided monthly by our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversations about these important topics. See you next month.